Welcome to the Scale with Tech and AI Growth Lab podcast. I am your host, Jay Farr at Tech Fusion Systems. Our guest is Luke Homan at Applied Frameworks. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jay. Hi, everyone listening. Luke, can you start us off and give us kind of a brief overview of Applied Frameworks and what it's all about? Yeah, Applied Frameworks is a consulting firm that's becoming a product firm using AI. So we'll have some AI stuff to talk about. And we focus on profitability of solutions, primarily in software-enabled companies. And what we mean by software-enabled is you could be a SaaS company, you could be a company that sells hardware where the software is an integral part to the hardware, but there's something about software that makes your solution unique or valuable. And then we focus on helping companies price and package and license those solutions to create a profit. Very interesting. Are you involved in the stages of like product market fit at all, or do you come in after the fact? We can come in before product market fit because sometimes product market fit is a, you have a good offering, but sometimes the reason you don't have product market fit is you might not have the right pricing model or the right pricing strategy, or what we call, Jay, is a value exchange. If you've got software and I've got money, I give you the money, you give me the software. That's simple, right? That's a value exchange. There turns out that there are a few specific ways to do a value exchange. If you're Stripe and you're a payment processor, you're doing a value exchange as a transaction. If you're Microsoft and you're selling Xbox, you're doing value exchange as hardware. If you're doing Xbox as a subscription, right, Xbox Gold or Xbox Live, then it's time-based access where you're, I give you money and you give me access to the games for a certain period of time. So in one of my own companies, Contenio, I started it and it was a B2B SaaS and we were transactional and we learned that our customers didn't want to pay on a per transaction basis. They wanted to pay a subscription and an annual fee and have all they could do. And so our company was admittedly struggling and we weren't getting the product market fit. Once we got the right value exchange in place, we had much better growth and eventually I sold that company. So sometimes we come in before product market fit when people are just like, we're not figuring it out. And sometimes after product market fit, when the investors or the founders are like, look, we're just not profitable and we gotta get to profitability if we wanna survive. Yeah, it's an interesting point you brought up. So like in the example of your start, your B2B SaaS startup, it wasn't necessarily a problem with the product market fit. It was just the way you were monetizing. So there's different ways to monetize the same product, like you were pointing out with a few of those examples. And that's very interesting because I guess I could make the argument you could make the same amount of money either way. Is it more of a perception thing to the customer that you think some customers want, I want to pay you a lump one solid static price and have all we can consume. Other people want transactional. Do you think it's industry specific or customer specific or what kind of determines the most likely successful way to monetize. You're illustrating your experience in this because you've pointed out something that people get lost in. And you said, look, I can make the same amount of money in the long run if I structure it properly. And the best companies do, if they have more than one way to go to market, they extract the same amount of money because the customers, and, and you think about it, if they didn't, the customers would figure out which of the techniques was cheapest and they would always go to the cheaper one. So companies that do offer different ways to pay tend to normalize the, the amount of money you're paying so it's the same. So now it's a choice. And that can be important to a business. Maybe a business had a really good year and they have some excess cash, especially if it's a small business owner, you don't always want to report cash to the IRS because that's a tax hit. So sometimes a small business owner might go to their suppliers and say, hey, look, I'll do a pre-buy for next year. Could you give me a discount? So they're getting a pre-buy, they're getting a discount, they're lowering their taxable income. So there's lots of financial strategies that go into that in terms of, yeah, I'll pay up front. Or maybe I had a bad year and you go to your suppliers and you say, hey, look, things aren't going as well. How about we move to a more transactional relationship and I'll just pay for what I need? 
Yeah. And that's interesting because in different stages of a business, sometimes you're a little cash poor, but you have enough revenue that you can do short-term payments, even though you're going to pay more in the long run. That's what you can do to survive until you get a little bit more profitable. And then other times you have the capital to, to pay up front. And you see a lot of that in the SaaS world too, right? Like most SaaS products will do a month to month. And if you want to pay up front for the year, they'll give you a month or two for free. So that's a very simplified example of that. Yeah, it is. It, but it is a good example. One thing that I would point out to the SaaS companies, uh, the founding teams of SaaS companies is you don't have to lead with a discount. When I'm coaching clients, I had one client where every time we'd have the conversation, they would start designing, how do I build in a discount? And I finally said, hey, Andrew, do you know every time we talk about pricing, you start finding ways to do a discount. And so we really started to talk about where did that come from? And it's, oh, my dad would always argue for discounts and he'd always be negotiating. I'm like, okay, that was your dad. <laughs> yeah. You're not your dad. But yeah, I get it. There are people who love to have the discount, but there are times where people don't have to have a discount mm -hmm. to purchase. And we think that discounting is one of those techniques that is often overused over yeah. Yeah, I think my feeling about it and what I observe is I think there's much more of a use case for it in the business to consumer world. Consumers love that sort of thing. And I think that's great there. But in business to business, I, I know for myself and I can speak for our clients, they're after value. They don't really want a discount. They want value and they want to pay full price for it because they want to get as much value as they can get. Yeah, I, and, I think in business, just to build on that for a second, sometimes, especially when you're starting out, your business clients, if they find value in your offering, they're happy to pay you because they want you to stick around. They want you to be profitable because they know that they are relying on you. And so you don't have to discount to some of the, especially when you're a smaller company selling to bigger companies. If you're providing enough value to that bigger company, they're like, hey, wait a minute, we'll pay you because we need you. How did you get into Applied Frameworks? How did Applied Frameworks come about? What was the motivation behind it? Do you think there's a really big problem with businesses figuring out how to be profitable? Do you think there's a big problem with businesses understanding what kind of margins they should have to be a healthy business? Can you give us some background on that? Sure. Applied Frameworks started in agile software development, doing coaching and consulting, especially in the space of product management. And that's what we started to see that the agile software development community was focused on iterative development, early releases, and this notion of bringing value to their customers. And you can see the word value all over the world, the universe of agile software development. It's in the agile manifesto. Uh, Scrum talks about providing value, the scaled agile framework, which is the framework used by large organizations doing agile development. It talks about value and value streams. And we started to notice that what we really wanted to talk about and what our what the highest level of leaders in a company want, want to talk about is they were like, look, we're shoveling a lot of money at software development and they're telling us that they're giving us value. But as an executive, especially in these bigger companies, I'm not paid on value. My variable compensation plan is bonused by profit. I get restricted stock units. I get equity. I get bonuses. And so those executives, they're thinking, how do I get my bigger car? How do I get my vacation home? They want profit. And we started testing this message out. How do we entice executives to really get involved in what's going on. And when we changed our language from value to profit, we started to get executives involved. And that's when we decided that we would write a book, we would talk about our techniques, and we would put it together in a platform that we're building right now with a chat GPT backend to help companies build more profitable solutions. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's funny because I see that in other industries too. For example, I see it very heavily in the coaching and, and the course creator space. A lot of the, the digital educational space, uh, it's really very profit focused. It's very deliverability focused. It's here are the results that you're going to get versus here's all the pretty stuff that is going to look good and you're going to love it and, and this and that. So it's a little less fluff and a little more to the point now so it's nice to see because at the end of the day like you were saying a company has to be profitable or it can't stay around for very long it's 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 bleeding cash on your own borrowed time it's you're a small business owner you don't have a pile of money sitting in the bank and even if you did 
you're still working and you can't lose money. One of the phrases that I like to say is, you give me a dollar of profit, I'll live forever. You give me a dollar of loss and I'll tell you when I fail because I'll just run out of money. I'll do the math, right? right? right. Now, yeah, if you're Apple and, you have, and you're losing a dollar a day, yeah, fine. You can last for a trillion years or whatever. <laughs> We're not Apple. Most companies aren't Apple. Most companies do have a much greater need to keep the cash flowing, keep profit flowing. Yeah, I think that's a healthy direction. To, it's nice to see that happening in the mainstream a little bit or becoming more mainstream, that conversation about, because at the end of the day, it's just about profitability and whether the business can continue to sustain itself and continue to grow and continue to serve its customers and continue to deliver real value, right, to their customers, not right. perceived value or that's marketed right. value. Yeah. So interesting. Do you think that I'm a marketer? I think we're, we, if we're entrepreneurs, we're all marketers, right? There's a famous book, there's a famous book written, all marketers are liars. For example, when you see a McDonald's commercial, that's not a hamburger, right? It's a piece of foam and uh, right. in this and that. Do you think that marketing is at all to blame for some of the disconnect between actual deliverables and perceived value? Sure. If, if I were to lay the blame on anyone, it would be a whole company problem when the values sh fall short. Marketing might get the blame for inflating something, but also marketing might be told something that's not true. And so they're going to go market the heck out of it. And then they go market something that's not true. We're seeing, for example, a famous car company right now is in a lot of hot water because it turns out that maybe the range they claimed for their batteries isn't what actually is happening. So there's lawsuits even. And imagine you're in that famous car company and you're on the marketing team and the engineering team walks up to you and says, hey, we're going to tell you that our range is X. And the marketing team says, great, I'm going to blow that message out. We got the best range. I'm going to do my thing. So the question would be, is marketing contributing to the problem? I don't know. Maybe sometimes, sure, but maybe not. So it's definitely a company problem. It's not clear if it's marketing source. Good point. Can you tell us a little bit about, maybe you can't speak about cl specific clients, but what types of clients do you work with most often? Are they mostly SaaS companies? Yeah, we tend to work a lot with SaaS companies and I can name a few clients. There's a client, Knowify, K-N-O-W-I-F-Y, and they build construction management software for project cost accounting and billing and invoicing. And we did some work with them last year and a great company, really tenacious founder, Mark Vicente and his team. A great story too, by the way, he went to get investors and they said, no, you haven't showed enough traction. He went out and he built his company. He got traction, went back to the investors and they're like, wow, okay, we'll invest. And so we have a relationship with a company, Companion Ventures. There's a VC firm in Boston and Noify is one of their investments. So they invited us to work with Noify. We worked with Mark and his team. And I'll give you some of the examples of the statistics that we can accomplish. As you suggested earlier, which is a good practice, they have a monthly op option and an annual option for their plans. And when we started working with them, only 20% of their customers were taking the annual option. So 80% were taking the monthly option. They had high churn rates because it took about three to four months for the customers to transition to the new accounting. So imagine it's two months in and you haven't really got all your processes switched over to the new software. You're going to be thinking, oh, the software's not worth it. It's a real pain. I don't want to do it. And you'd get churn. With better pricing and better packaging, we were able to help them change that number of 20% choosing the annual to 65% choosing annual. Transformed a lot of things. First, you get more money up front when you're doing annual. So their cash position was better. But second, their churn rates plummeted because when you sign an annual license, you're thinking, man, I'm stuck with this software. Not stuck in a bad sense, but I got to make it work. Now the adoption curve changed from being three yeah. to four months to being two to three months because the teams knew that the software was there. So they wanted to get the value. And then because they got the new software up and running and transitioned, it's a great tool, but it did change your process. So once you adopted their new process, people were like, hey, Noify is really good. So it's been really transformative hmm. for that company to go through a pricing and packaging activity. 
It's very interesting because I'm not going to say that's a small thing to do, but it maybe to an outside listener, it might be a seemingly small change for such big results. And that's interesting because we're always looking for similar things in businesses. What are the smallest things that we can do to get the largest output, right? What's the best ROI that we can get by making the smallest changes or the smallest investments? So it's, it's a very interesting case study. Yeah. And typically... Pricing is one of the fastest things you can do. Even Harvard Business Review, the vaunted magazine of Harvard Business Review, to me, gets it wrong. Two months ago, they had an issue where they do case studies. And it was this case study of a software company that was facing some hard times. And the CEO was saying, hey, my board is putting pressure on me to fire employees and cut costs. And all they talked about in the entire article was how do you cut costs? And I'm reading the article and I'm like, okay, but you've got customers and the, co- the company is providing value to your point. Hmm. Have you thought about raising prices? Because when you're cutting employees, first it's emotionally and it takes a lot out of the team The people who are fired, their lives are upended. The people who stay, they may feel it's just bad all the way around. It's also a very big loss. You hire those people. It's very expensive to hire people. A lot of them are good people, clearly. You've spent all this time training them. You have desks for them, computers, IT software licensing, and you're just going to cut them. Yeah, I, I totally see. I think what you're getting at maybe is that wouldn't be the first thing to look at, right? No, I wouldn't look at that as the first thing at all. I did my own analysis based on the the numbers in the article. And all the company had to do was raise pricing as near as I could tell, 4%. Wow. And and I'm like, why didn't you raise 4 or 5%? Why are you not? That's practically inflation right now. Yeah. Would the customers really care if you raise prices by 4%? Probably not. A few might, but at the cost of what? I'd, I would rather take a shot at raising my prices 5%, have a, cu- a few customers go away, and maybe transform my need to lay off people. Instead of laying off 50 people, maybe I only need to lay off 10 or maybe none. So I was really disappointing because we're so trained in business to think of ROI, which is good in terms of cost reduction which isn't good. There's more ways. There's two basic things, right? I I can cut costs or I can increase my prices. And most of the time we talk about, I'm going to cut costs with the right strategy and the right packaging and the right licensing. You can absolutely raise prices and customers are fine. And maybe a better thing to talk about is not cutting costs, but cutting waste, right? Because there's good cost and bad cost. And I know when I was in corporate America myself, working with large manufacturing companies, that was a a big thing. And you certainly can make a big impact doing that, but you don't want to cut good costs, right? That's right. And I'm glad you're pointing that out. And there are many forms of waste in terms of the manufacturing component, physical waste, physical goods waste, but even in something like a SaaS company, building a feature that your customers don't want is a form of waste because I could have had the team build something that my customers did want. So even software companies have plenty of waste when they don't understand who they're serving. Yeah. What do you think about, and I'm curious as to how prevalent this is on the larger scale with larger SaaS companies, a lot of small SaaS companies, especially in the beginning stages, will do very clever things to raise capital instead of taking VC money, like offering their software for five years or lifetime deals and all this sort of thing to raise capital. What do you think about that? Have you seen that at all with larger SaaS companies? Do you think that's a viable way to raise capital? Yeah, I'm laughing because I think there's that funny phrase called, I resemble that remark. When I was at my last company, Contenio, we did everything we could because we didn't have VC funding. And so we would go to companies and we'd say, hey, would you buy our software? And sometimes they'd say, no, it's missing this feature. And I'd say, hey, look, here's the deal. You buy our software now. I'll give you the license. We get the money. We'll build the feature. And when the feature is delivered, the annual term of your license will start. You win because you're guaranteed to get the feature because I eventually have to deliver it. Otherwise, you'll get the software free forever. I win because I get the money I need to build it. And you get the benefit of the software right now. And it was surprising the number of customers in our early days who would take us up on that. They'd be like, yeah, we can see value in your software. And it doesn't do everything we want, but it does enough. So we see some value. Right. And I'd be like, great. 
And that's we, a very yeah. interesting, I haven't seen that done a lot, but that's a really interesting scenario that you brought up. And I've actually, I've thought of it has crossed my mind before, but I don't see a lot of it. So it's very interesting. Yeah. And it, I wouldn't say it would work for everyone. I was blessed because we had a just an amazing development team. Our development team was run by a very experienced leader. I'll just say his first name, uh, Dan, Big Dan. And Big Dan was a very experienced engineering leader. And you could just trust this guy. If he said, hey, I'm going to have that feature done, he'd get it done. Might have to work a little extra harder on a weekend or a night every now and then, but he'd get it done. He would deliver. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I've, I've worked with some of those people, man. I love them with. I love working with people like that. It's like we can do it. It's a challenge, <laughs> right? And when they hold their commitments, our customers started to build trust with us, and so on and so forth. The other thing that you asked about was what I would call is multi-year term licenses. So if it's an annual license, is one year. And you might be a startup or a customer funded a company and, and you're looking for that multi-year, it's entirely acceptable to start with, I'll give you a three-year deal or a four-year deal or a five-year deal. I'll give you a discount. But again, I get the cash up front. And mm -hmm. we used to call it elephant hunting. When you <laughs> hunt an elephant, you can eat for a long time. Right. Yep. Yeah, I, I see a lot of that. And I love it because there's a time and a place to take VC money and, and other types of funding, but it certainly is expensive. You do have to pay it back, let's remember, with interest. And yeah, there, I see a lot of creative funding. And I also have heard from some people in the startup space that VC funding is down for SaaSes because there is a lot of interest in AI and, and other investments. Do you see that happening right now? Yeah, I live in Silicon Valley, like right in the heart of it. And there's definitely a depression in VC funding right now. People haven't been going public, so the returns to the VCs aren't there. The M&A market is slowed down a little bit. So again, the VCs, their job is to make money for their investors. So we're seeing less investment. The valuations are lower. The check sizes are lower which means its value is at a premium. And some of the founders that we work with who are seeking funding, it's a very simple message to remind them, look, if you want to get a VC excited, show them that you're unit profitable. So it's pretty common to have this J curve where I'm, if this is time, I, I'm initially losing money because I'm building my product, but eventually I'm going to make a profit on a per unit basis. No one expects the first generation of a product to, to really make a lot of money. But by your third generation of your product, whether it's hardware or your third release, if you're SaaS, you really should have your unit economics down so that if it's either in the consumer space and you're selling a, customer, a single user or in the enterprise space, by your third release, your unit economics should be profitable on a per unit basis. And then you can go to the investors and say, look, you put money in and we'll grow. And every time we get a customer, we're still making money. That's one of the challenges with Spotify, right? They're still not really unit economic profitable. Interesting. Do you, do you think that this lower valuations and less VC funding, do you think this is a function of the overall economy? Because when you see a lot of startups, you see the series A funding and that rolls over the B and the C, and then they either get acquired or they fail or they go public. If they're not going public, so there's not the round C payouts, it trickles all the way down to, this, to the very, very startup in the first iteration of, of funding. Do you think that's a function of all of that? I think it's funny. If we want to talk macroeconomics, all business owners track the macro economy because we're all affected by it. I really thought we were going to be in a big recession by this time at the start of the year because of the high interest rates and how fast they raise interest rates and how capital was being constrained to small companies. And I'm pretty impressed that it doesn't appear that we're in a, a total economic recession. I was reading something the other day in, in one of the business magazines, like a Forbes or a Fortune or whatever, where someone said, it feels like we're in little micro recession. So some parts of the economy are doing okay or even growing, but other parts of the economy are actually doing badly. And so it's not a whole economy recession, but there are some parts that are struggling. And I think that's somewhat true. And you see it in certain parts of tech. If you take out the AI 
uh, cycle, there's a lot of tech that seems to be neutral or uh, flat, if you will, or even declining. And that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if this is just a delayed impact. Sometimes things are propped up because of election cycles and things like that. There's a lot of going on on the big picture. But anyway, I won't uh, get too far into that, I guess. Um, We don't want to be negative about politics. No. I don't care if politically, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Tea Party or whatever. I do care if you can talk with people who have other points of view with respect And remember that we're all Americans. You're a veteran and we thank you for your service. And I care about the the idea that we want to be in a society that is civil, that's respectful. And that's when I don't feel very good about some of the things that are going on is when we've lost our ability to be civil with people, even if they have a different point of view. Yeah, I agree totally. And uh, Albert Einstein had a great quote. I don't exactly uh, remember word for word, but it's something along the lines of, if you don't have an open mind, you can't learn anything new. And I think that there's a lot of like people that just don't want to hear other ideas other than what they have preconceived as being the right answer. And I think that's a very dangerous thing because you can't learn anything new and, and you can't grow. And I think it's important. I love talking to people with different ideas than me because I'm going to learn something. I don't care who's even right or wrong. It's just you can see through someone else's lens, but you can see more of the whole picture. We don't all see the same thing. We only see two different sides of the same thing. So if we can so Jay, talk I about that. Turn, I'm going to have to turn around the question for a minute. So everyone listen, I get to ask Jay a question. You think before the show, of course, Jay and I were chit-chatting and you mentioned that you were on an aircraft carrier, which means you've traveled part of the world. Do you think that part of that feeling in yourself was based on the fact that you've been able to travel and you've been able to see other cultures and be in other places? No, I was like this ever since I was a kid. I was just always oh. a very curious person and I just always wanted to learn. It's funny because I was a uh, Dan Henry. I don't know if Dan Henry, he's a young guy, but he's a multi-millionaire self-made internet guy. Yeah. Young. And he was doing his podcast and he was, he was talking about how angry he was about people talking about how they didn't like so. And it was in the context of people that were learning things from a speaker. And he said, why the hell do you have to like someone to learn something from them? And I thought that was very interesting. And I laughed, of course, because I totally agree. You don't have to like someone to learn something from them, or you don't have to like someone personally to do business with yeah, them necessarily. If you hang out with the speaker anyway, they're not calling you for a beer. <laughs> you don't have to hang out and be friends. And so I was just like that as a kid. Ever since the earliest I can remember, I just uh, was very curious, just wanted to know everything and was interested in how other people saw things. Uh, whether we agreed or not really wasn't, wasn't the point. It's know? funny. I, the reason I asked that, honestly is because I don't know if I was as naturally curious as a kid as you were, but I started to be able to travel through work. And as I traveled, I did become more curious because I was like, wait a minute, people who live in this part of America talk a little different. I grew up (laughs) pretty sheltered, if you will. And then I was like, hey, they eat different food and they talk a little different and they think a little differently. Oh, this is interesting. And I think for me, it was the same curiosity, but it it did develop a little, I'd say later. And it was partly through the experience of travel. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it does give you a much broader perspective. And you realize, I think for people that don't really travel a lot and they don't really spend time with people that are different from them, they don't really understand how different people are as you go around the world. And that's just something I think is an amazing thing. Like those people are weird. Like they wear all those weird hats. They eat that weird food. I just think that's neat. It's just cool to see. And it's cool to try and experience different things. So I've just always been that way. So I don't know. Yeah. No, you're more like my wife. She's really fun to travel with because she's fearless. When you walk down the street, it'd be like, let's go here. And I'm like, what's yours? She goes, I don't know, but there's it's some alley and it looks like there's a restaurant at the end of it and there's people standing outside. So that looks fun. Let's go there. Yeah. And I, I think what you, what you said earlier has something to do with that too, is I'm a very respectful person of other people. And I think if you have respect for another person, then you're okay with them having a different opinion than you. And that's perfectly fine rather than this kind of mentality of, I must make everyone see it my way because I'm right. And that's not always the case. Yeah. A little bit of this and a little bit of that, but let me ask you, here's a good question. And I want to touch on your book as well after this. What do you see happening in your industry, in your very specific consulting 
industry of helping SaaS companies and software centric companies, I think is the way you put it, be more profitable and to make sure that they are better equipped to know how to be profitable and in more earlier stages and to avoid financial problems. Like some of that's education, maybe that kind of takes us right into your book probably, but what kind of trends do you see? Of course, in like down economies, it takes care of itself, doesn't it? Because if your profitability is low or non-existent, then you're done for. Right. In a, in a good economy, you might skate by. So that kind of some of those cycles take care of themselves, but that's a rough way to go about it. So what kind of big trends do you see going on as far as educating businesses to build better from the beginning, be better as they're growing and that whole process? I will start by using the word process that you just finished using. And that is we've seen product management education do a lot of effort and a lot of work on what I would say is process. How do I build things? How do I use agile software development practices to build stuff? And how do I understand my customers' needs? I mean, that's part of it, right? How do I do research? How do I do I insight? What are your problems? What are your pain points? But going back to where we need to educate people is we need to educate them on how to do pricing and packaging. How do I price for value? How do I economically determine what something is worth? One of my favorite examples is I was working as a consultant for a company that created software to track truck driver hours of service. Mm-hmm. So a truck driver is a regulated job. You have to take breaks. You have you can only drive so many hours a day, et cetera, et cetera. So this company built a device that allowed the driver to track their hours of service very efficiently and it would track when the truck was on, et cetera. And we went to a trucking company and they and we said, hey, we can save your driver 20 to 30 minutes a day. So instead of filling out a manual log, which is error prone and could be falsified and it creates legal liability, this thing is going to plug into the engine bus. It's going to track the driver. It's going to be super easy to use. And we can save you 20 to 30 minutes a day. And the trucking executive said, I don't care. I'm like, that's interesting. Why? He said, because my truckers are unionized. I'm paying them eight hours a day, whether they're working for seven and a half or eight. Saving me time, saving my truck driver's time doesn't mean anything. So then we went back and Jay, we looked at their routes and we said, hey, wait a minute. If you knew you had more time, you could change your routes so that you could make more deliveries or increase your coverage area using the same amount of staff. And then the trucking executives were like, oh, okay. Because now you're correlating this concept of value to how they make money. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the most important objectives of the education that we need to provide product managers moving forward. We need to get them to think not in terms of I'm saving time or I'm saving fractions of pennies here. We have to have them think in terms of their customer, that lens that you talked about, and the lens that they need to adopt is the lens of their customer. I mean, it was Zig Ziglar who famously said, don't worry about getting what you want. Just help enough other people get what they want. That's right. Yeah. He's a pretty successful guy. He was a pretty successful guy. Yeah. He was the best salesman in the world before Grant Cardone. (laughs) Now he is. Yeah. So yeah, you want to tell us about a little bit about your book and I do what what this is all about. This is Software Profit Streams, a guide to designing a sustainably profitable business. This is on Amazon. It is. And so I got the book here. It's right here. And it is big, right? I'm going to warn people it's big, but that's a real book. I love it. It it is the most, I'll, I'll give you some examples. It is a beautifully illustrated and designed book. So for people who are looking at it online, great. But for people who are listening, we literally wrote every page of the book by hand. And then we sent the book to a graphic designer And the reason I did this, it was- That is a gorgeous, I have to tell you, that is a gorgeous book. That's a very easy on the eyes because I know sometimes I buy these books and I'm going to read it because I want the content, but man, it's hard on my eyes. And I have to tell you, the layout of that book is gorgeous. Very, it flows so nicely. 
Yeah, because all the books on pricing that we have right now, they're written by boomers for boomers. <laughs> they're text heavy and people don't consume information that way anymore. People need to have something that's visually appealing. They need to have, and not to be denied, Jay, I'm a huge fan of comics. When I was a kid, man, I had all the cool comics. I'm a Marvel guy. So I had the X-Men, I had Fantastic Four, and I had Spider-Man. I had Moon Knight. I had all the cool characters. And you realize that people can communicate and absorb information with text and pictures a little bit more effectively than with just text and text and text and text alone. So we really created a, a radically different kind of business book and it's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And what happened to the old saying, a picture's worth a thousand words, isn't it? What happened yes. to that? Everybody knows that. And so yeah. we loaded the book, every page has graphical elements. And it was interesting in writing the book because as I would be writing it or my co-author Jason would be writing it, we would actually write some things and we'd say, I think a picture could actually illustrate this better. Yeah. So we had fewer words and better pictures. Yeah, I love it. I love it because it delivers so much more conceptual understanding to the reader too. Yes. Can you give us a, kind of the, some of the cliff notes, like what's the premise of the book, what are some of the chapters? How does it, what's the kind of ride that you take us through in understanding software profit streams? The first thing that we do is we look at the system of decisions. So when you think about pricing for you and me and people buying something, right? Pricing is a number, but the number is intended to be part of a system. For example, are you a premium brand and you have a premium pricing strategy? So before I get to the number, we're going to ask you, what's your strategy? Who are you as a company? What do you care about? Are you Tiffany or are you Walmart? And there are software companies who are premium software companies. Or are you Apple or are you Samsung? Or And once I know your strategy, that tells me a lot about how your price is going to be developed. We also spend a lot of time looking at software license agreements, which is everyone has a license agreement that governs how they use the software. We look at compliance and we look at your both your cost and the benefit to compliance. If you're selling in Europe, for example, there is a legal regulation known as GDPR, which governs the use of data and data elements, especially of individuals. If you're selling in California, you have the CCPA, which is the California equivalent. We'll also look at the, how are you modeling ROI for your customers? And again, this can be a little tricky in the consumer space because a lot of times consumers aren't buying something based on ROI. Like I have a Yeti microphone that I'm using for our podcast. I didn't really do a big cost benefit analysis of a $99 or $129 microphone. It was, yeah, okay. But I can tell you for sure, we put in solar panels a few years ago in our house and my wife and I sat down at the website and we were going through how much is it going to cost and how much is it going to save and what's that ROI, even on a consumer level, we wanted to know that putting solar in was going to actually save us money. Yeah, and so we go sense. through all of those elements. And so everything that I just talked about, that's a separate chapter within the book. So there's a chapter on compliance. There's a chapter on calculating the customer return on investment. There's a chapter on pricing strategies. There's a chapter on discounts, for example. I mentioned earlier that people often give too many discounts. And especially in software companies, there's it's almost the wild west. Like the salespeople are like, yeah, I'll discount. And you're like, who told you you can discount? Right. Whatever you got to do to close the deal, right? <laughs> Whatever you got to do to close the deal. And marketing is stuck because... They're marketing a certain thing. And then the salespeople are, don't necessarily mean to go against their marketing, but it's certainly undermining what the company is trying to do. So we sometimes will work on just helping a company. Another one I can mention is Fullcast. When we worked with them, they were doing fine. But then we hit the section of the book and the section of our class about discounts and the CEOs, wow, I don't know if we really have thought through our discount and our discounting strategies. We collected them. And then the team looked at them and they're like, yeah, this isn't quite right. We're going to remove this. We're going to remove this and change this to this. And then that created a more cohesive 
and consistent discounting strategy because you don't want different customers to get different discounts. It doesn't feel fair to the customer. No, it, it doesn't. And I have seen that quite a few times. And it's like, I've even dealt with the same company myself, like more than once and I'll get two different prices. What the heck's wrong with these guys? Just call a different <laughs> rep and I get a different price. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a good feeling at all. Yeah. No, it's, it isn't because then you're like, and then it can sometimes get into borderline fraudulent behavior. Okay. Does, is there a kickback going on here? What's it can get all weirded out. So you, and you don't want that. And who is the book written for? Do you have any specific verticals or, or targets, or is it basically just any company that is very software centric? Any company that's using software as part of their core differentiator. So I'm looking outside right now and I see a stop sign and it's a metal pole with a piece of metal on it. There's no software in it. I wouldn't be interested. They wouldn't buy my book. But within our lifetime, I guarantee that stop sign is going to be replaced by a stop sign with a sensor or a camera or something that's going to detect if someone ran the stop sign and caused an accident. And when that happens, we'll kick in and we'll be part of that. The chair you're sitting in right now, it doesn't have sensors. Within the next, within your lifetime, that chair is going to have sensors and it's going to give you feedback on your posture. It might tell you, hey, you got to get up and move around for your back or whatever. Those are all things that's happening as uh, Mark Andreessen, you've given us some nice quotes. I'll use the Mark Andreessen quote in his article, software is eating the world. And what he meant was as processors become embedded, as all of our devices get connected to the internet, we start to see software in a sense everywhere. But the metal benders, and I mean that in a good sense, the, the people who create these physical goods, they're not fully embracing all of what you can do and all of the ways that you can make money at software. And so we think there's a big growth market in the metal benders who are integrating software into their solutions. We think there's a huge growth market as the next generation of people who are doing agile software development practices like Scrum or Safe want to migrate or evolve their thinking from a notion of value into a notion of like, how do I really make money at this? Yeah, that's really interesting. You brought that up and I totally agree. And I always say one of my methodologies is especially talking with small businesses is like technology is probably the largest tool that you can use to leverage your output. And it's becoming more and more true as technology becomes more enriched and more capable. And now we have AI. And that kind of leads us into, into the next question I have for you, which is, what do you think about all these new trends in automation and AI? How is it changing? You just mentioned sensors and everything. And it's funny because I bought a new fancy toothbrush and it has a piece of, it has an app and it makes a graph about my toothbrushing and I don't use no it because- No way. Yeah, it does. And I'm like, right. I'm not going to use it because I'm old school. I just turn it on until my teeth are clean. But some people, they want to see the graph of their weekly toothbrushing and how good of a job they did. Yeah, maybe... Imagine you took that data and you sold it to your dentist who then used it to get a better rate from your insurance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's so much that we could do. So here's where we are. Applied Frameworks has just launched a platform called Horizon. And Horizon is an AI powered and a chat GPT powered solution to help people make better pricing and packaging and licensing decisions. Now, raw chat GPT, as we know, has both the advantage and disadvantage of consuming lots of information, but sometimes it may not give you information that is as tuned as we would like. So what we've done with our version is we've used our entire book plus a bunch of our course, not the, the classes we teach, and we feed that into ChatGPT so that the answers that you get through Horizon are more tuned to questions about pricing and licensing. And I'll give you a really concrete example. If you use ChatGPT and you're not careful, it will actually give you different versions of the ROI equation that we were talking about earlier than we do. And so there are a couple of quote unquote different interpretations of ROI, but the one that is most accepted by economists is not the default answer of ChatGPT. So when you're using our platform, Horizon, and you're asking about pricing and packaging and modeling, or and you can look at other things like net present value 
or internal rate of return or return on investment or payback period. All of these financial tools have different interpretations. And we, of course, want our customers to have a consistency that you wouldn't necessarily get with raw chat GPT. So that's, we think it, there's a lot to be said for that, but our AI platform is tuned specifically to our content. And what's the domain? Is it uh, horizon.ai or? Horizon.appliedframeworks.com. Okay. Awesome. And who is this software for and exactly? Can you tell us a little bit more about what it does? Yeah. The software is really targeted towards product managers and the people that they're interacting with to make pricing and packaging changes. So you might see an engineer involved with some of the horizon usage model because the change that I might want to make in my pricing or my packaging might affect my software architecture. Think about your app with your toothbrush. Maybe there's a free version of the app and maybe there's a paid version of the app. And then the paid version of the app would probably have different capabilities. Knowing what to turn on and what to turn off and knowing if you paid or if you didn't pay, that's all mm. part of that backend server architecture. And so the engineers need to know what those packaging are. And so they would be able to interact with Horizon and with the product managers, even the license agreement. So you probably downloaded the app on whatever phone you're using or whatever tablet you're using. And maybe there's additional terms and conditions in the license agreement that you had to say, accept. Okay, that has to be enforced by the architecture. Okay, that's really interesting. And that gets us into like feature sets and, and different pricing models of the same product. Do you want the premium or the, the starter package or the pro right. or, or whatnot? So you're actually using AI to decide what, how to tier your feature, your right. featured offerings. We're working on that. We don't have that released yet because it's a new offering, but that's exactly, it's amazing how you just went right to one of the really big problems, whereas as uh, we, I call it feature stuffing. You have a product manager and they have this solution. They just keep stuffing features into it. We don't want that as consumers. I don't yeah. want a feature that's designed for a different problem. I want a package that's tuned to me and my needs. And so by changing the packaging, I can actually improve the experience of the user by removing the features that I don't need. I don't want to see features I'm not going to use. It's not right. relevant. And you don't want to feel like you're paying for features that you don't want to. Yeah, I don't. So. No one would design Microsoft Word today the way Microsoft Word was designed 40 years ago. And 40 years ago, it was like stick, stick everything. Now, Microsoft Word is this gargantuan thing where it has basic writing. It, you could write a book in Microsoft Word. You can do layouts and automation. And you're like, okay. I have written a book. I've written a few books. So I need all that super duper power of Word. But the vast majority of people in the world do not need indexes and cross references and right. all the other stuff that's there. Right. I'm guessing they figure since it's already like that, it's cheaper just to give everything to everybody. Yeah, they're a victim of their prior success, if you will. Once you have the infrastructure, it's you can't always just throw out the old infrastructure and, and change it. Like you're a little bit stuck sometimes on the foundational pieces of, of what was built on top of, right? And I'm pretty sure that you could say the same thing about Excel or Google Sheets. There, there's a gazillion formulas, but most of us are just use, using it to add, subtract, multiply. <laughs> That's funny, man. Is there anything else that you want to cover about either your book or applied frameworks or your Horizon AI tool? That's really cool. It's neat to see that. So I'm glad. Thanks for sharing that with us. I think there's a couple of things that I'll, I'll close with two things, right? The first is good profitability starts with what you talked about. And that is, I am producing something that is of benefit to my customer. I am creating value for them. And, but the difference is that profitability means I can put a number on that value and I can charge for it and my customers will pay that. And it's fair. We consider it a fair exchange it, it should be profitable, but it is also fair. So those are, I think, some of the closing points is that going back to my Yeti microphone or whatever, I whatever I paid for it, I think it was somewhere between 99 and 129, whatever I paid for it, it felt fair. And so I'm happy. 
That makes sense. So yeah, so Amazon.com, really interesting book. I don't buy a lot of books and I honestly am going to order a copy of this because there's so much in it. And I think it's just a different way to look at not only just business in general, software and SaaS and just how technology is changing the world and changing businesses. I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, thank <laughs> um, you, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, you bet. I'm going to put it on my bookshelf after I read it because it goes on my desk first and then I it goes to the bookshelf because if I put it there first, I won't read it. Just no, I get it. it. I get so it. it goes right here. So this is Software Profit Streams, a guide to designing a sustainably profitable business. I actually just searched on Amazon Software Profit Streams popped right up. Gorgeous looking book. Do you have, okay, one more closing question for you. You bet. Um, I like to ask this, especially sure. to seasoned guests like yourself. What advice would you give to other entrepreneurs and let's isolate it to like the tech space or the SaaS space or something along those lines or the AI space. We're looking to succeed in a big way that you wish you would have known when you started. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of times I get the, what advice would you give? But I think you added the wish you would have known when I started. I think the piece of advice that I would give, and I have given recently to a young entrepreneur is that you have to now make things really beautiful. I think that when I started, because I'm older, we were in the era of, to give myself, to date myself, I was using MS-DOS on IBM. Hey, I used MS-DOS too. <laughs> and MS-DOS was ugly. It was command line and all that kind of stuff. And it now, was beautiful at the time. Okay, it was beautiful at the time, but our standards change. It's like, what do we consider beautiful and what do we consider uh, relevant, if you will, in terms of beauty and, and standards. And so I think that the piece of advice I would really stress is this notion of we've gone past functionality. Anyone can build functional software. You now truly have to build something that is beautiful. It's got to be aesthetically pleasing. It's got to be the right colors and the right designs, the right fonts. And so designers really matter and designers should be part of the team. And if I could change one thing about my last company, Contenio, I would have hired more quickly a full-time designer to make our software more beautiful than what it ended up to be. It got beautiful over time because we did hire a nice designer at the end, a guy named John, but I would have hired a designer much earlier. And, and that's the advice I, I give entrepreneurs now. You really have to have a designer on staff who really is understanding your users and, and designing something to meet their needs. Right. Functionality alone is not enough anymore. We have to raise the bar. Uh, love it. Yeah. Luke, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Any closing points you'd like to make? No, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Awesome, man. Thanks so much.